Welcome to podcast number two. I hope this turns out to be podcast number two. Well, I don't have a weekly schedule I wouldn't yet. put a number on it, George. Well, I want to start numbering these things. I want to have regular podcasts. And... Okay, welcome to the second podcast that we're doing at Jeff Shiwi's studio on my Chicago visit for the Epson Print Academy, March 5th. I'm here at today 329? at... 3.29? 329. It's snowing outdoors. I'm hoping to catch a plane back to Denver at the end of today. Uh-huh. Beautiful day here in Chicago. I'm here at Jeff Shiwi's studio with Bruce Frazier. Hello. And Jeff Shiwi. Hello. And Tom Fors, special guest. I'm going to let Tom tell us what he does. Elect- sounds like electrical engineering. Yes, I do electrical engineering. Cool. So um, Tom was responsible for writing uh, some very interesting calibration scripts for the Camera Raw plugin, so we're really happy to have him here to help answer some of your questions that you folks dialed in and called into my answering machine. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the first question and um, then kick it around and see if we can give Bob an answer to this question. Hi, uh, this is Bob. Uh, I was editing uh, some photos in uh, Lightroom. And when I go to the edit in Photoshop mode, I notice that all my third-party filters have been disabled. And not only that, but even if I save it as a Photoshop file, close it, and then reopen it in Photoshop, it somehow remembers uh, attached to this image to not be able to use the filters. And uh, I would like to be able to use those filters, and I'm not sure why or how this gets disabled. Um, So that's my first question on that. And the second question is whether or not uh, you will add the ability to have some control over the degree of sharpening. Uh, that seems to be missing. It seems to be sort of an all-or-nothing uh, setting right now, as far as I can tell. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha, Bob. Sounds like Bob's calling from the wonderful islands. Um, okay, so Bob's first question. Um, very simple solution very to the simple. first question, George, uh, is that what he was probably doing is exporting in 16-bit and some third-party plugins. Uh, will only run in 8-bit per channel files, 8-bit per channel RGB files. So if he were to export it as 8-bit per channel or in Photoshop convert from from 16-bit to 8-bit, then those third-party plugins would would then be able to run. Uh, So he's exporting in 16-bit from Lightroom because he doesn't have a choice right now. Uh, but, probably choosing edit in Photoshop and it automatically writes out a 16-bit TIFF. In Adobe RGB, yeah. Right. Actually, Profoto. Oh, it is Profoto. Yeah. Excellent. Good. So, and if you're going to the web, you might want to remember to knock that down to sRGB for JPEGs destined for the web. Um, so, easy one. Uh, Bob's second question. Sharpening control. Sharpening uh, control. Bruce, you want to talk about There's, sharpening? Well, there are two places where you can sharpen in Lightroom. One is in the develop module, and it doesn't work yet, but it might be good when it does. We don't know. The other is in the print module. It takes a long time. Well, you can't actually, you don't get much visual feedback as to the effect of the controls, right? Right. It's somewhat broken. It's somewhat broken. Um, 
I, I have every confidence that it'll be fixed. Oh, yeah. Um, that's really the place where you want to take care of all the image-dependent and source-dependent sharpening issues. You know, a headshot with a close subject with soft detail needs very different sharpening from a very high-frequency image, a forest full of pine needles, that kind of thing. The output sharpening really should be a determinate process. There shouldn't be any need to have control over it. It should be, as long as Lightroom knows the technology and the destination to which it's printing, there is an objectively correct sharpening that can be applied. That's not the case for the image-dependent issues. So, for the print sharpening, I don't think you need controls. In fact, I don't actually see the need for an on-off switch myself. Well, I don't think, uh, it wasn't on-off in Beta 1, but Beta 2 shipped with low, medium, and high, I yeah. think. And um, we're but not low and, low and medium were a waste, and, and high was in the ballpark. But the question is, uh, if you know where you're outputting to, you know the media, you know the resolution of the file, there is one, essentially, one right answer, optimal for that that output uh, type. Uh, so I wonder if we might be able to license that answer from someone. Um, <laughs> we have some ideas on that. <laughs> okay. we, we that was going to be my question. That's another, that's another conversation. But, um, uh, I, did, I did give Mark some print samples to take away with him. Yeah, I did. I saw those. We're not so, done yet. Well, and we just to give a, a better, uh, quick answer, because Bruce's answer was the definitive answer, but the quick answer is that in the develop module, you're doing capture sharpening. And that's a separate function than the output sharpening that is done from the print module. So already, Lightroom has the ability to do a capture sharpen and an output sharpen. They're just not fully flushed out and refined functionality yet. But it's something that, that Mark is working on. And also Kevin uh, T. Scudder. Yeah. And it's probably also helpful to point out that the sharpening that's in the develop module is derived from the camera raw code, so it should match when we're done. It should perfectly match the same range of sharpening you're able to get in the ACR plugin in Photoshop. And, and the fun thing is that Thomas, uh, uh, when asked, uh, he likes using camera raw's sharpening controls for capture sharpening. And when asked what he does for sharpening for print, he uses a third-party product that I won't happen to mention the name. Because he told us we weren't allowed to. Alert, allowed to tell that name. Yeah. But he has but a particular... He yeah, he told us. Oh. First and I. He, he, that he really liked a certain particular output sharpening. I see. In combination with the camera raw sharpening. Okay. Well, let's... Uh, I think we got... So we didn't... We Bob. actually didn't mention... We, uh, we didn't mention photocut sharpener at all. Yeah, okay, cool. I know this is turning into an advertisement. We better move on to the next question. This is from some caller who identifies himself, I think, as the dog. I'm not sure who this might be, but let's, uh, let's take a listen to the question. Hi, I have a question for the team. Thanks for asking. My first name is Dog. The question is this. In Adobe Camera Raw, we have a histogram and we have RGB readouts. Both of those uh, are being uh, provided based on the encoding color space that we're going to use when we eventually uh, convert our raw files into a color space. This is very useful, and I'm wondering why neither of those two features are available in Lightroom. So the question is, 
why is it that we do not have um, feedback on the encoding color space and the numbers in Lightroom as we do in Camera Raw. Thank you. Bye. So I think when I asked Mark this question, he said, we do have RGB readouts. They're just black text on a black background right now. <laughs> yeah, that's probably less than useful. That's less than um, useful. I think people sometimes obsess too much about histograms, but the one thing that histograms are very useful for is identifying clipping. And in the case of the camera raw histogram, distinguishing between dynamic range clipping and saturation clipping, gamut clipping, because you get different colors mm -hmm. in the spikes. I think that's something we need. But other than that, I don't think we need to worry too much about histograms. Where I really find the RGB readouts valuable is in determining whether or not there's detail in highlights that you just can't see on the monitor, mm -hmm. but probably is going to be rendered in print. Other than that, I've been spending so many years trying to build a system that allows me to ignore the numbers and work visually that um, I'm not particularly upset when I don't get immediate numerical feedback. I find that I'm using it less and less. But finding, deta finding hidden detail is really the one thing that I can't do any other way. Right. Um, I would agree, except that uh, recent conversations with folks at AP actually indicate that they don't always have the opportunity to work on calibrated monitors. And when they're correcting, and I'm putting that correcting word in quotes here, when they're correcting photos on in their in their newsroom, uh, raw photos for color, they like to have the RGB readouts to put on a what the, a known neutral value, so that they can determine if they're indeed you know close to having a neutral value there. And so, they've got the eyedropper. They could probably just set the white balance. With and we know the wonderful reproduction quality of newspaper photographs. Well, those those <laughs> those photographs go out and get published sometimes on the cover of magazines. So. Yeah. Well, there is another case in which uh, uh, an argument to be made for having the RGB readouts is particularly when you're uh, dealing with uh, calibrating uh, for the camera, calibrating the uh, calibrate function of camera raw. And yep. Tom can talk about that. It's although you do it automatically in the Tom Four script. The, right. what, what's the name of that script? The ACR calibrator script. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would have to say that the only rational way to do that is to use Tom's script. Yes. I mean, I wrote an article on creativeprocom that you can still go and find that steps you through the whole hideous manual process. It's not something that normal people should have to do. No, it's not. Um, the script is uh, a brute force solution. It takes a while, but it always comes up with the right answer, and you don't have to be there while it's finding it. Well, I'll tell you, the, the readouts were useful in Photoshop when developing the script, but I actually wish that we had lab readouts in Photoshop ah. in Camera Raw, because that would have been more helpful for me. Interesting. And if we get to tap into some of that scripting in Lightroom, we might have a Calibrate script for Lightroom eventually. Uh, yes. I'm looking forward to seeing what scripting would be available for Lightroom. So. Ah, so am I. Lots <laughs> of users are looking for that SDK. And, and George, before we go to the next message, I, I do have a message for the last caller whose first, first name, name is Doug. Is Dog. <laughs> yep. We happen to know that it's Andrew Rodney from Santa Fe. It sure sounded like Andrew. Oh, it was definitely Andrew <laughs> because he's the dog, the digital dog in Santa Fe and also the uh, author of uh, 
color management for photographers, so he knows a little something about color. I suspect that was a leading question. I think so. But thank you very much, Andrew. And You've blown his cover now. Yes, I've blown his cover. <laughs> oh, well. All right, next caller. We love you, dog. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Uh, next caller for Stephen. Hi, George. My name is Stephen, and my question is about image quality. My question is, can you speak to workflow in Lightroom that detracts from image quality when enlarged later and enhances image quality? And which aspects of photo retouching or adjustment should be done in Lightroom and which in Photoshop CS2 to end up with the best image quality and resolution when the image is enlarged above, say, 13 by 19 or, or larger. Thanks, and it's a wonderful product so far. I appreciate your help. Bye. Thanks, Stephen. Good question. George, can I take that? Sure. I'll answer the second part first. Since Lightroom is essentially, at this point, primarily a metadata editor, not a pixel-level editor, uh, getting the global tone and color optimized in Lightroom Develop uh, would be the best first start. Then if you need to do substantial retouching at the pixel level, uh, and part of that retouching could be up-resing, part of it could be uh, correcting blemishes with the healing brush or the clone tool, part of it could be compositing multiple images from different takes or different images into one image, and then up-resing uh, for optimal uh, uh, larger uh, printing, then obviously those are pixel level things that really have to be done in Photoshop. Yeah. So ideally you get the image to look as good as you can in, in, on a global basis in Camera Raw for tone and color, and arguably reduce the color noise level, uh, all of the Camera Raw controls, and optionally use the uh, sharpening and the noise reduction very carefully. But um, uh, once you get it into Photoshop, then you're dealing with pixels, and then you can use Bicubic Smoother to up-res and uh, uh, apply sharpening, do your retouching, and then bring that back into Lightroom uh, as a TIFF, ideally. Yeah, I agree. But I think, I think Stephen is also asking... He asks what part of the workflow is in converting his RAW is best done in Lightroom. And I think I think he's kind of digging at, you know, maybe setting the white point, setting the black point. How far do I want to go before I commit to burning in those pixels and opening it up into Photoshop for further retouching? There isn't really a metric for image quality, but there are things that you can do anywhere along the reproduction chain that limit your future options. Anytime you have pixels that have different values and you do something that makes them have now have the same value, that difference, which may have been detail, which may have been noise, may have been useful, may have been entirely spurious, but what if you've done something that makes them the same value, Such you can never tease them back apart again. Right. Such as setting so, the black point too far. Yeah. So, you know, setting endpoints, um, you may want to be conservative doing that in the develop module in Lightroom. You may want to leave yourself a little headroom. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you have 
a very dark background that has a bunch of splotches that just distract attention away from the main subject. Clip the whole thing to black, why not? It's not anything mm -hmm. useful to you. It will probably make an aesthetically better image, but there's no metric for that. So, on the one hand, you've introduced clipping, which technically could be said to be a bad thing, but on the other hand, you've made the image look better. So, I think there's a, there's a danger that people obsess too much about technical things that they don't really understand and let those get in the way of actually just making the image look the way they want it to. Trust your eyes. Yeah, That's what your eyes are the final arbiter. The other point that I would make uh, to further enhance what Burr said is that uh, camera raw and Lightroom are currently limited to global image corrections. Right. And photographers often try to get the image to look as good as possible using global controls, but ultimately uh, there are times when you need to be able to have localized adjustments for local corrections that are not applied to all the pixels. The only place to really do that yet, although we're hoping that Lightroom evolves in its scope of functionality, uh, but the only way to do that is to do local corrections in Photoshop. Right. And so in terms of the workflow, the caller would want to get the best global setting, and it may be conservative, backing off the black and the white before bringing it into Photoshop, but get the best global setting in uh, Lightroom. And then, and only then, once it's in Photoshop, can they do a very local correction. However, uh, develops controls, the HSL controls and the, and the uh, split tone uh, controls, allow a little bit more functionality for color control and the curves function in Lightroom offers some interesting tonal control, but again, it's essentially a, a global uh, correction. But you're working in a, you're exporting to a 16-bit space, and if you get over into Photoshop and you find that you're, you don't quite have the detail or the tonal range you want, you can always jump back. It's totally non-destructive. Export a new Lightroom is non-destructive. It's, it's, it's non-destructive in the sense that you can always go back and do it, do the work over. Right. Um, but you can't actually easily undo right. the work that you, any clipping that you've Wouldn't introduced. You just have to go back to the raw file. Right. The beauty of raw, raw images is that they are essentially read-only files and you can always go back to the original pixel data and reinterpret it. But, you know, you don't want to have to do that too often because... No you won't have time to have a life. Exactly, it's a waste of time. Okay, last question I think, caller named Mark. Hello George and the folks at Adobe. My name is Mark, I'm a professional photographer in Tampa, Florida. Uh, the majority of my work is done out in the field using a power book tethered to the camera and I have a two-part question. First part, while working in the field making minor corrections and edits to my images, for example, editing the white balance, minor tonal corrections along with cropping, then I return to the to my main workstation at the office where I transfer the images. Do the minor corrections or edits that I made in the field, do they transfer along with the images when I transfer them from the PowerBook to my main workstation? If not, is there a way that this could seamlessly be integrated? Second part of my question is, as I primarily shoot tethered using third-party applications, there's been a lot of discussion in the Lightroom forums regarding this feature. I believe this feature was 
if it was added, would greatly improve the workflow process, making the Adobe products completely one-stop shopping. Anyway, those are my two questions. Um, Light, I believe that Lightroom has a lot of promise, and keep up the good work, and I look forward to the next beta version. Thanks, Mark. Okay, Mark. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the comments. Um, working in the field with a laptop, Currently, we do not support synchronizing databases between two machines. It's something lots of users have requested. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that uh, on this uh, recent expedition that uh, Seth Resnick and John Paul Caponegro, Steve Johnson, and Michael Reichman and I were on, um, we would have had a great deal of uh, difficulty because uh, we were shooting uh, hundreds of gigs of images down in Antarctica. We were all working on laptops and boy, uh, to be able to bring the uh, uh, information back and then do the main work on the workstation is absolutely required. At the moment, it's not there. Uh, there's no way in Lightroom currently to elegantly and safely transfer your library synchronized between a laptop and a workstation. But that is absolutely something that is very uppermost in the minds of the engineers right now. And discussing some of the finer points of that functionality is a really good thing to be occurring in the forums. And I do honestly think that we will arrive, hopefully by 1.0 ship date, arrive with a really good solution to work on the field uh, and do uh, preliminary work and, and selection edits and metadata tags and you know rough uh, um, tone and color settings and then be able to synchronize that and upload it to the main computer once you're back in the studio. Absolutely, that's something that's got to be done. One of the big questions that still is unanswered is the respective role of the database and of the image file itself. Uh, where does the truth lie? Right now, if you import as DNG, for example, all your uh, camera raw edits get written into the DNG file, and they travel with the DNG file, which is very simple as long as you're dealing with online images. But for offline storage, which I think Lightroom has to address, it's useless because you don't have access to the image, hence you don't have access to that information. So there's a real gray area between you know what gets stored in the database, what gets stored in the image file, how they get synced, what takes primacy when they get out of sync. These are all you know significant questions and there aren't easy answers. Right. Confidence. But clearly, we, we you know we do have to make it relatively elegant for people to be able to transfer shoots off the laptop onto a desktop machine, that's kind of a no-brainer. So transferring a shoot and merging shoots are two interesting avenues for both archiving images, uh, delivering images to a client, but actually synchronizing two databases is, is um, possibly more interesting and definitely more complicated in terms of the engineering effort. So yeah. we're looking at all those options and trying to figure out what we can do for the 1.0 release because lots of photographers are telling us they're working in the field with a laptop and they want to be able to bring those changes into their home database and and sync them up. Well, here, the, one of the things is 
the home workstation may be connected to a server, may have a lot of really big hard drives. That's where the main library, the main collection of images will be. Right. You're not, not want to carry all that stuff around with you. No. On a laptop. So the laptop will be kind of like the satellite client that is used, you know, for a duration or a project or a period of time. Sure. You don't carry your XServe with your laptop? No, not so much. It's a little heavy, you know. <laughs> uh, I do have a .Mac account, but, <laughs> you know, uh, high-speed internet isn't high-speed enough for that kind of stuff. When you have it. Yeah, yeah when you have it. But uh, the ability to work and, and do useful functionality, metadata tagging, uh, selection editing, ranking in the field, all that time invested at that stage has to be able to be preserved and then enhanced once you bring it back into the uh, uh, the main uh, workstation. Yeah, it's actually one of the nicest features of Lightroom. It runs on a relatively modest laptop system, so yeah. we're anticipating a lot of photographers will be working in the field. And I suspect that your end-user license agreement, <laughs> just the legalese, uh, will probably allow uh, for both uh, uh, a primary and a secondary computer, not unlike Photoshop. I'm sure it probably will. So, tethered shooting. Tethered shooting. The huge problem is that um, you'd need to reverse engineer. the. It's already bad enough with the file formats. Every time a new camera comes out, Tom Knoll has to reverse engineer the file format. That's why we really need DNG. If Tom Knoll had to also reverse engineer all the functions to control the camera, uh, I think it would take a very, very long time to add support for new cameras. What seems to make sense is to use the proprietary vendor software to control the camera and very quickly make that image available in Lightroom, uh, maybe through a watched folder mechanism or something else like that. I've actually played with doing that with Camera Raw and Bridge, and I've had mixed success. It's worked fairly well with some cameras, it's worked very badly with others, but I don't think it's practical or reasonable to expect Adobe to develop the ability to actually drive every camera on the market, certainly not without a great deal more cooperation from the camera vendors. Again, if there was a standard protocol for driving cameras, for setting the aperture, for setting the shutter speed, for setting the ISO, for adjusting the focus, if there was a standard protocol for controlling these things from the computer, then yeah, tethered shooting would become a no-brainer function to support. But absent some kind of standard protocol, it's just a huge can of worms. I think the watched folder route is our best first effort, and um, we'll see how that works for users. We're going to try and implement that. Uh, watched folders are also useful for all kinds of other things, uh, not only tethered shooting, but just automatic importing of images you know, into your database. Printing. Printing. Mm -hmm. All kinds of useful uh, features there, so possibilities for One of the things folder. in terms of uh, uh, a watch folder and, and the current uh, Lightroom import. Uh, one of the things that would be useful is to uh, be able to maximize the efficiency in which the import uh, occurs. And if you could set up a watch folder to do an auto import 
and auto uh, ing uh, ingestion copying files to the multiple places as well as uh, metadata embedment and hopefully this is something that I would really like to do is to select upon import what default setting from develop to apply. I'd love to really be able to do that right from the very beginning because if I'm bringing in stuff that I shot under tungsten light sure. for example might as well go ahead and tell it to use my tungsten light uh, develop setting. Same thing for cloudy skies or whatever. Love to be able to do that right in the uh, import. Uh, and Mark uh, Hamburg, if you're listening, um, if I could get that for beta 3, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I can promise you, you won't get that for beta 3, but maybe for version 1.0. So it does leave import open, templates. It does leave open the whole question of how we deal with multiple settings for the same image. Well, that's all. And we have to do that. Yeah, that's all stuff that's being discussed pretty heavily <laughs> right now. Believe yeah, me, yeah. it's a topic of much discussion. We have a lot of really great ideas and great designs, and, and we will have something. Okay. And uh, in addition to having multiple settings per file, uh, we're looking at different schemes for variations, uh, versions, as well as two up compare before and after settings for the develop module and maybe even the library. Well, we already have compare in the library, but a versioning scheme would allow you to compare two different sets of camera raw settings on the same file side by side in the library. That would be very useful. So, yeah, lots of really cool stuff coming uh, in, and, in uh, the future betas. Locked pan and zoom and compare. Yeah, we'll, we, we'll, we'll probably get there. Without we'll, locked pan and zoom, it's not really compare, it's just show two images side by side. Show two images, okay. Maybe yeah. we'll change the way that's worded. Well, no, that would mess up the UI. Fix the functionality. Yeah, fix the functionality. For sure. Now, Locked pan and zoom is, is uh, pretty essential for compare, so we're working on that one. We seem to have three questions from someone named Jeff here. Let's see if we can figure out what these are all about. Hey, this is Jeff from Chicago. I uh, just wanted to see if Mark Hamburg could answer this question. What's the name of this tune? Could it be Ashes and Rain, Moonless, Evolution of Desire, or Sometimes in Dark Water? Curious minds want to know. See ya. Bye. I played this for uh, Mark in the office, and before the first two bars were done, he had named it. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately, Mark isn't here with us today, but um, he knew exactly what that uh, what that tune was from one of his CDs. How many CDs does Mark have out? A couple. Couple. Yeah. Interesting music. Interesting. You like ambiance. Yeah, he's busy at home in between coding and changing diapers, yeah. creating CDs with. And, and George, I think that was me calling in on the question line, was. wasn't it? Jeff yeah. from Chicago. Yeah, no, no, okay, that was me. Actually, we, got, we had a, a, a few messages from someone named Jeff in Chicago. So I'm thinking what we should probably do is, you know, at some point do a session with the engineers and play these for the engineers. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think we can... It, George, I, I do think it's interesting <clears throat> that we're answering the questions, but somehow it's a little bit incestuous 
if you play answer a question own. that I asked and expect me to answer it. <laughs> okay, we'll save these. <laughs> and actually, what, why would you think that he knew the answer if he had asked the question? Okay, well, before we wrap it up, any more, any further comments about uh, where we're going with Lightroom? We won't be seeing you again until uh, Washington, D.C., Epson Print Academy. Yeah, in two weeks. Two weeks. Bruce? Well, I'm sure we'll have moved the goalposts several times between now and then. We're busy doing um, that as we'll, often as possible. We'll be interested to see what Lightroom is in by the time we get to Washington, D.C. So one um, of the cool new features that popped up today, I hope we get to keep it, popped up just in today's build, was the ability to save your print driver settings in a print template. So that is going to be enormous. That's it's going to be fun. You know, We've been doing this uh, Epson Print Academy Roadshow, which always features live printing. <laughs> and in, I think, five out of the six cities we've done so far, there has been a point where Jeff Shuey, Matt Colbert, Greg Gorman, and John Paul Caponegro are all standing around the printer, scratching their heads, trying to figure out what exactly went wrong in the print chain because nothing is happening. <laughs> um, it's almost always it's always either somebody loaded the wrong paper or a setting got screwed up somewhere. There are so many settings that you have to make when you print that it would be wonderful to be able to capture them all and put them on a button that just said print so that those of us who have the occasional need to make a hundred prints very quickly can just open the image, press the print button, open the image, press the print button, rather than having to go tunneling through dialog box after dialog box after dialog box and occasionally making mistakes. I think we're going to have it. Our, uh, our OS partner finally relented and uh, gave us the secret code, so uh, we're able to save those driver settings now into print templates, so that's a big win. And one of the things, George, uh, it was fun having uh, Kevin Tiescutter here, who is the, one of the primary engineers on the print module, and uh, uh, having Kevin get to hear J.P. Caponegro and Mac Holbert and, and uh, uh, Greg Gorman and I are all talking about printing. It's good because it's useful if the engineers actually know a little something about the functionality that they're working on. I oh, thought that absolutely. was great that you brought him to the printing academy. Now yeah. you have now you have to make him print 500 images under a deadline. Oh, he is. I mean, you should see Kevin's office. I mean, he's loaded, fully loaded with printers and paper and inks, and he's. He's, uh, he's pretty into it. So all the engineers are really into shooting a lot of pictures and printing a lot of pictures. So, you know, that's sort of... But do they work under but, a deadline? But having an yeah. externally imposed deadline makes it a totally different situation. I see. Okay. You, well, need, you need to give them that experience. Okay. I'll work on that next time I'm in San Jose. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for today. Thank you, Bruce, Jeff, and Tom. Uh, we'll try and get you guys back together maybe sometime during the Beta 3 period for another chat. Until then, thank you and see you around Lightroom.